Section thirty three of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In resolving to go to Holland with my husband and take possession of the title of Countess as soon as possible, I had a view of deceiving my daughter, were she yet alive, and seeking me out. It seldom happens that a nobleman or his lady are called by their surnames, and as she was a stranger to our noble title, might have inquired at our next-door neighbours for the Dutch merchant, and not have been one jot the wiser for her inquiry. So one evening, soon after this resolution, as I and my husband were sitting together when supper was over, and talking of several various scenes in life, I told him that, as there was no likelihood of my being with child, as I had some reason to suspect I was, some time before, I was ready to go with him, to any part of the world, whenever he pleased. I said that great part of my things were packed up, and what was not would not be long about, and that I had little occasion to buy any more clothes, linen, or jewels whilst I was in England, having a large quantity of the richest and best of everything by me already. On saying these words, he took me in his arms, and told me that he looked on what I had now spoken with so great an emphasis to be my settled resolution, and the fault should not lie on his side if it miscarried being put in practice. The next morning he went out to see some merchants who had received advice of the arrival of some shipping which had been in great danger at sea, and whose insurance had run very high it was this interval that gave me an opportunity of my coming to a final resolution. I now told the Quaker, as she was sitting at work in her parlour, that we should very speedily leave her, and although she daily expected it, yet she was really sorry to hear that we had come to a full determination. She said abundance of fine things to me, and happiness of the life I did then, and was going to live believing, I suppose, that a countess could not have a foul conscience, but at that very instant I would have, had it been in my power, resigned husband, estate, title, and all the blessings she fancied I had in the world, only for her real virtue, and the sweet peace of mind, joined to a loving company of children, which she really possessed. When my husband returned, he asked me at dinner if I persevered in my resolution of leaving England, to which I answered in the affirmative. Well, says he, as all my affairs will not take up a week's time to settle, I will be ready to go from London with you in ten days' time. We fixed upon no particular place or abode, but in general concluded to go by Dover, cross the channel to Calais, and proceed from thence by easy journeys to Paris where, after staying about a week, we intended to go through part of France, the Austrian Netherlands, and so on to Amsterdam, Rotterdam, or The Hague, as we were to settle before we went from Paris. As my husband did not care to venture all our fortune in one bottom, so our goods, money, and plate were consigned for several merchants, who had been his intimates many years, and he took notes of a prodigious value in his pocket as what he gave me to take care of during our journey. The last thing to be considered was how we should go ourselves, and what equipage we should take with us. My thoughts were wholly taken up about it some time, 
I knew I was going to be a countess, and did not care to appear anything mean before I came to that honour. But on the other hand, if I left London in any public way, I might possibly hear of inquiries after me in the road that I had been acquainted with before. At last I said we would discharge all our servants, except two footmen, who should travel with us to Dover, and one maid to wait on me, that had lived with me only since the retreat of Amy, and she was to go through if she was willing. And as to the carriage of us, a coach should be hired for my husband, myself, and maid, and two horses were to be hired for the footmen, who were to return with them to London. When the Quaker had heard when and how we intended to go, she begged, as there would be a spare seat in the coach, to accompany us as far as Dover, which we both readily consented to. No woman could be a better companion, neither was there any acquaintance that we loved better, or could show more respect to us. The morning before we set out, my husband sent for a master coachman to know the price of a handsome coach with six able horses to go to Dover. He inquired how many days we intended to be on the journey. My husband said he would go but very easy, and choose to be three days on the road, should stay there two days, and be three more returning to London, with a gentlewoman, meaning the Quaker, in it. The coachman said it would be an eight days' journey, and he would have ten guineas for it. My husband consented to pay him his demand, and he received orders to be ready at the door by seven o'clock the next morning. I was quite prepared to go, having no person to take leave of but the Quaker, and she had desired to see us take the packet-boat at Dover, before we parted with her. The last night of my stay in London was spent very agreeably with the Quaker and her family. My husband, who stayed out later than usual, in taking his farewell of several merchants of his acquaintance, came home about eleven o'clock, and drank a glass or two of wine with us before we went to bed. The next morning the whole family got up about five o'clock, and I, with my husband's consent, made each of the Quaker's daughters a present of a diamond ring valued at twenty pounds, and a guinea apiece to all the servants without exception. We all breakfasted together, and at the hour appointed the coach and the attendants came to the door. This drew several people about it, who were all very inquisitive to know who was going into the country and what is never forgot on such occasions, all the beggars in the neighbourhood were prepared to give us their benedictions and hopes of an arms. When the coachman had packed up what boxes were designed for our use, we, namely my husband, the Quaker, myself, and the waiting-maid, all got into the coach. The footmen were mounted on horses behind, and in this manner the coach, after I had given a guinea to one of the Quaker's daughters, equally to vide among the beggars at the door, drove away from the house and I took leave of my lodgings in the minories, as well as of London. At St. George's Church, Sonthwick, we were met by three gentlemen on horseback, who were merchants of my husband's acquaintance, and had come out on purpose to go half a day's journey with us. And as they kept talking to us at the coach-side, we were going at a good pace, and were very merry together. We stopped at the best house of entertainment on Shooter's Hill. Here we stopped for about an hour, and drank some wine, and my husband, whose chief study was how to please and divert me, caused me to alight after the coach, which the gentleman who accompanied us, observing, alighted also. The waiter showed us upstairs into a large room, whose window opened to our view a fine prospect of the River Thames, 
which here, they say, forms one of the most beautiful meanders. It was within an hour of high water, and such a number of ships coming in under sail quite astonished us, as well as delighted me, insomuch that I could not help breaking out into such like expressions. My dear, what a fine sight this is! I never saw the like before. Pray, will they get to London this tide? At which the good-natured gentleman smiled and said, Yes, my dear. Why, there is London, and as the wind is quite fair for them, some of them will come to an anchor in about half an hour, and all within an hour. I was so taken up with looking down the river, that till my husband spoke I had not once looked up the river, but when I did, and saw London, the monument, the cathedral church of St. Paul, and the steeples belonging to the several parish churches, I was transported into an ecstasy, and could not refrain from saying, Sure, that cannot be the place we are now just come from. It must be further off, for that looks to be scarce three miles off, and we have been three hours by my watch, coming from our lodgings in the minories. No, no, it is not London, it is some other place. Upon which one of the gentlemen present offered to convince me that the place I saw was London, if I would go up to the top of the house and view it from the turret. I accepted the offer, and I, my husband, and the three gentlemen were conducted by the master of the house upstairs into the turret. If I was delighted before with my prospect, I was now ravished, for I was elevated above the room I was in before upwards of thirty feet. I seemed a little dizzy, for the turret being a lantern, and giving light all ways for some time, I thought myself suspended in the air. But sitting down, and having eat a mouthful of biscuit, and drank a glass of sack, I soon recovered, and then the gentleman who had undertaken to convince me that the place I was shown was really London, thus began, after having drawn aside one of the windows. "'You see, my lady,' says the gentleman, "'the greatest, the finest, the richest,' and the most populous city in the world, at least in Europe, as I can assure your ladyship, upon my own knowledge, it deserves the character I have given it. But this, sir, will never convince me that the place you now show me is London, though I have before heard that London deserves the character you have with so much cordiality bestowed upon it. This I can testify, that London in every particular you have mentioned greatly surpasses Paris, which is allowed by all historians and travellers to be the second city in Europe. Here the gentleman, pulling out his pocket-glass, desired me to look through it, which I did, and then he directed me to look full at St. Paul's, and to make that the centre of my future observation, and thereupon he promised me conviction. Whilst I took my observation, I sat in a high chair, made for that purpose, with a convenience before you to hold the glass. I soon found the cathedral, and then I could not help saying I have been several times up to the stone gallery, but not quite so often up to the iron gallery. Then I brought my eye to the monument, and was obliged to confess I knew it to be such. The gentleman then moved the glass and desired me to look, which doing, I said, I think I see Whitehall and St. James's Park, and I see also two great buildings like barns, but I do not know what they are. Oh, says the gentleman. They are the Parliament House and Westminster Abbey. They may be so, said I, and continuing looking I perceived the very house at Kensington which I had lived in some time. But of that I took no notice, yet I found my colour come to think what a life of gaiety and wickedness I had lived. 
gentleman, perceiving my disorder, said, I am afraid I have tired your ladyship. I will make but one remove, more easterly, and then I believe you will allow the place we see to be London. He might have saved himself the trouble, for I was thoroughly convinced of my error, but to give myself time to recover, and to hide my confusion, I seemed not yet to be quite convinced. I looked, and the first object that presented itself was Oldgate Church, which, though I confessed to my shame, I seldom saw the inside of it, yet I was well acquainted with the outside, for many times my friend the Quaker and I had passed and repassed by it when we used to go in the coach to take an airing. I saw the church, or the steeple of the church, so plain, and knew it so well that I could not help saying with some earnestness, My dear, I see our church the church i mean belonging to our neighbourhood i am sure it is oldgate church then i saw the tower and all the shipping and taking my eye from the glass i thanked the gentleman for the trouble i had given him and said to him that i was fully convinced that the place i saw was london and that it was the very place we came from that morning when we came to Sittingbourne, our servant soon brought us word that although we were at the best inn in the town, yet there was nothing in the larder fit for our dinner. The landlord came in after him and began to make excuses for his empty cupboard. He told us withal that if we would please to stay, he would kill a calf, a sheep, or a hog, or anything we had fancy to. We ordered him to kill a pig and some pigeons, which, with a dish of fish, a cherry pie, and some pastry, made up a tolerable dinner. We made up two pounds, ten shillings, for we caused the landlord, his wife, and two daughters to dine with us, and help us off with our wine. Our landlady and her two daughters, with a glass or two given to the cook, managed two bottles of white wine. This operated so strong upon one of the young wenches, that my spouse being gone out into the yard, her tongue began to run, and looking at me, she says to her mother, La, mother, how much like the lady her ladyship is speaking of me the young woman who lodged here the other night and stayed here part of the next day and then set forward for canterbury described this lady is the same person i am sure this greatly alarmed me and made me very uneasy for i concluded this young woman could be no other than my daughter who was resolved to find me out whether i would or no i desired the girl to describe the young woman she mentioned which she did, and I was convinced it was my own daughter. I asked in what manner she travelled, and whether she had any company. I was answered that she was on foot, and that she had no company, but there she always travelled from place to place, in company, that her method was, when she came into any town, to go to the best inns and inquire for the lady she sought, and then, when she had satisfied herself that the lady, whom she called her mother, was not to be found in that town or neighbourhood. She then begged the favour of the landlady of the inn where she was to put her into such a company that she knew that she might go safe to the next town, that this was the manner of her proceeding at her house, and she believed she had practised it ever since she set out from London, and she hoped to meet with her mother, as she called her, upon the road. I asked my landlady whether she described our coach and equipage, but, but she said the woman did not inquire concerning equipage, but only described a lady so like your ladyship that I have often since I saw your ladyship took you to be the very person she was looking for. Amidst the distractions of my mind this afforded me some comfort, that 
my daughter was not in the least acquainted with the manner in which we travelled. My husband and the landlord returned, and that put an end to the discourse. I left this town with a heavy heart, feeling my daughter would infallibly find me out at Canterbury, but as good luck would have it, she had left that city before we came thither some time. I was very short in one thing, that I had not asked my landlady at Sittingbourne how long it was since my daughter was there. But when I came to Canterbury, I was very anxious and indefatigable in inquiring after my daughter, and found that she had been at the inn where we were then, and had inquired for me, as I found by the description the people gave of myself. Here I learnt my daughter had left Canterbury a week. This pleased me, and I was determined to stay in Canterbury one day, to view the cathedral, and see the antiquities of this metropolis. As we had sixteen miles to our journey's end that night, for it was near four o'clock before we got into our coach again, the coachman drove with great speed, and at dusk in the evening we entered the west gate of the city, and put up in an inn in High Street, near St. Mary Bredman's Church, which generally was filled with the best of company. Anxiety in my mind on finding myself pursued by this girl, and the fatigue of my journey, had made me much out of order. My head ached, and I had no stomach. This made my husband, but he knew not the real occasion of my illness, and the Quaker very uneasy, and they did all in their power to persuade me to eat anything I could fancy. At length the landlady of the inn, who perceived I was more disturbed in my mind than sick, advised me to eat one poached egg, drink a glass of sack, eat a toast, and go to bed, and she warranted, she said, I should be well by the morning. This was immediately done, and I must acknowledge that the sack and toast cheered me wonderfully, and I began to take heart again, and my husband would have the coachman in after supper, on purpose to divert me in the honest Quaker, who, poor creature, seemed much more concerned about misfortune than I was myself. I went soon to bed, but for fear I should be worse in the night, two maids of the inn were ordered to sit up in an adjoining chamber. The Quaker and my waiting-maid lay in a bed in the same room, and my husband by himself in another apartment. While my maid was gone down on some necessary business, and likewise to get me some burnt wine which I was to drink going to bed, or rather when I was just got into bed, the Quaker and I had the following dialogue. The news thou heardest at Sittingbourne has disordered thee. I am glad the young woman has been out of this place a week. She went indeed for Dover, and when she comes there and canst not find thee, she may go to deal, and so miss of thee. What I must depend upon is that, as we do not travel by any particular name, but the general one of the baronet and his lady, and the girl hath no notion what sort of equipage we travelled with, it was not easy to make a discovery of me, unless she accidentally in her travels light upon you, meaning a Quaker, or upon me, either of which must unavoidably blow the secret I had so long laboured to conceal. As thou intendest to stay here to-morrow, to see the things which thou cost antiquities, and which are more properly named the relics of the whore of Babylon, suppose thou wert to send Thomas, who at thy command followeth after us to the place called Dover, to inquire whether such a young woman has been inquiring for thee. He may go out betimes in the morning, and may return by night, for it is but twelve or fourteen miles at farthest thither. I like thy scheme very well, and I beg the favour of you in the morning, a 
as soon as you are up, to send Tom to Dover with such instructions as you shall think proper. After a good night's repose I was well recovered, to the great satisfaction of all that were with me. The good-natured Quaker, always studious to serve and oblige me, got up about five o'clock in the morning, and going down into the inn-yard met with Tom, gave him his instructions, and he set out for Dover before six o'clock. As we were at the best inn in the city, so we could readily have whatever we pleased, and whatever the season afforded, and my husband, the most indulgent man that ever breathed, having observed how heartily I ate my dinner at Rochester two days before, ordered the very same bill of fare, and of which I made a heartier meal than I did before. We were very merry, and after we had dined we went to see the town-house, but as it was near five o'clock I left the Quaker behind me to receive what intelligence she could get concerning my daughter from the footman who was expected to return from Dover at six. We came to the inn just as it was dark, and then excusing myself to my husband I immediately ran up to my chamber, where I had appointed the Quaker to be against my return. I ran to her with eagerness and inquired what news from Dover by Tom the footman. She said Tom had been returned two hours, that he got to Dover that morning between seven and eight, and found at the inn he put up at there had been an inquisitive young woman to find out a gentleman that was a Dutch merchant, and a lady who was her mother, that the young woman perfectly well described his lady, that he found that she had visited every public inn in the town, that she said she would go to deal, and that if she did not find the lady, her mother there, she would go by the first ship to the Hague, and go from thence to Amsterdam and Rotterdam, searching all the towns through which she passed in the United Provinces. This account pleased me very well, especially when I understood that she had been gone from Dover five days. The Quaker comforted me, and said it was lucky this busy creature had passed the road before us, otherwise she might easily have found means to have overtaken us, for as she observed, the wench had such an artful way of telling her story that she moved everybody to compassion, and she did not have doubt, but that if we had been before, as we were behind, she would have got those who would have assisted her with the coach, etc., to have pursued us, and they might have come up with me. I was of the honest Quaker's sentiments. I grew pretty easy, called Tom, and gave him half a guinea for his diligence. Then I and the Quaker went into the parlour to my husband, and soon after supper came in, and I ate moderately, and we spent the remainder of the evening, for the clock had then told nine, very cheerfully, for my Quaker was so rejoiced at my good fortune, as she called it, that she was very alert, and exceeding good company, and her wit and she had no small share of that, I thought was better played off than ever I had heard it before. My husband asked me how I should choose to go on board. I desired him to settle it as he pleased, telling him it was a matter of very great indifference to me, as he was to go with me. That may be true, my dear, says he, but I ask you for a reason or two which I will lay before you. If we hire a vessel for ourselves, we may set sail when we please have the liberty of every part of the ship to ourselves, and land at what port, either in Holland or France, we might make choice of. Besides, added he, another reason I mention it to you is that I know you do not love much company, which, in going into the packet-boat, it is almost impossible to avoid. I own, my dear, said I, your reasons are very good, 
I have but one thing to say against them, which is that the packet boat by its frequent voyages must of course be furnished with experienced seamen, who know the seas too well even to run any hazard. At this juncture the terrible voyage I and Amy made from France to Harwich came so strong in my mind that I trembled so as be taken notice of by my husband. Besides, added I, the landlord may send the master of one of them to you, and I think it may be best to hire the state cabin, as they call it, to ourselves, by which method we shall avoid company. Without we have an inclination to associate ourselves with such passengers we may happen to like, the expense will be much cheaper than hiring a vessel to go the voyage with us alone, and every whit as safe. The Quaker, who had seriously listened to our discourse, gave it as her opinion that the method I had proposed was by far the safest, quickest, and cheapest. Not, said she, as I think thou wouldst be against any necessary expense, though I am certain thou wouldst not fling thy money away. Soon after, my husband ordered the landlord to send for one of the masters of the packet-boats, of whom we hired the great cabin, and agreed to sail from thence the next day, if the wind and tide answered. The settling our method of going over sea had taken up the time till the dinner was ready, which we, being informed of, came out of a chamber we had been in all the morning to a handsome parlour, where everything was placed suitable to our rank. There was a large, old-fashioned service of plate, and a sideboard genteelly set off. The dinner was excellent and well-dressed. After dinner we entered into another discourse which was the hiring of servants to go with us from Dover to Paris, a thing frequently done by travellers, and such are to be met with at every stage in. Our footmen set out this morning on their return to London, and the Quaker and coach was to go the next day. My new chambermaid, whose name was Isabel, was to go through the journey, on condition of doing no other business than waiting on me. In a while we partly concluded to let the hiring of men-servants alone, till we came to Calais, for they could be of no use to us on board a ship, the sailor's or cabin-boy's place being to attend the cabin passengers as well as his master. To divert ourselves we took a walk, after we had dined, round about the town, and coming to the garrison, being somewhat thirsty, all went into the sutler's for a glass of wine. A pint was called for and brought but the man of the house came in with it raving like a madman, saying, Don't you think you are a villain to ask for a pot of ale when I know you have spent all your money and are ignorant of the means of getting more, without you hear of a place which I look upon to be very unlikely? Don't be in such a passion, landlord, said my husband. Pray, what is the matter? Oh, nothing, sir, says he, but a young fellow in the suttling room, whom I find to have been a gentleman's servant, wants a place, and having spent all his money would willingly run up a score with me, knowing I must get him a master if ever I intend to have my money. Pray, sir, said my husband, send the young fellow to me. If I like him, and can agree with him, it is possible I may take him into my service. The landlord took care we should not speak to him twice. He went and fetched him in himself, and my husband examined him before he spoke as to his size, mien, and garb. The young man was clean-dressed, of a middling stature, of dark complexion, and about twenty-seven years old. "'I hear, young man,' says he to him, "'that you want a place. It may perhaps be in my power to serve you. 
let me know at once what education you have had, if you have any family belonging to you, or if you are fit for a gentleman's service, can bring any person of reputation to your character, and are willing to go and live in Holland with me. We will not differ about your wages. The young fellow made a respectful bow to each of us, and addressed himself to my husband as follows. Sir, said he, in me you behold the eldest child of misfortune. I am but young, as you may see. I have no comers after me, and having lived with several gentlemen, some of whom are in their travels, others settled in divers parts of the world, besides what are dead makes me unable to produce a character without a week's notice to write to London. I should not doubt, but by the return of the post, to let you see some letters, as would satisfy you with any doubts about me. My education, continued he, is but very middling, being taken from school before I had well learned to read, write, and cast accounts, and as to my parentage, I can as well give you an account of them. All that I know is that my father was a brewer, and by his extravagance ran out a handsome fortune, and afterwards left my poor mother almost penniless, with five small children, of which I was the second, though not above five years old. My mother knew not what to do with me, so she sent a poor girl, our maid, whose name I have forgot this many years, with us all to our relations, and they left us and I never saw or heard of all from any of them any more. Indeed, I inquired among the neighbours, and all that I could learn was that my mother's goods were seized, that she was obliged to apply to the parish for relief, and died of grief soon after. For my part, says he, I was put into the hands of my father's sister, where by her cruel usage I was forced to run away at nine years of age. And the numerous scenes of life I have since gone through are more than would fill a small volume. Pray, sir, added he, let it satisfy you that I am thoroughly honest, and shall be glad to serve you at any rate, and although I cannot possibly get a good character from anybody at present, yet I defy the whole world to give me an ill one, either in public or private life. If I had had the eyes of Argus, I should have seen with them all on this occasion. I knew that this was my son, and one that among all my inquiry I could never get any account of. The Quaker, seeing my colour come and go, and also tremble, said, I verily believe thou art not well. I hope this Kentish air, which was always reckoned a guish, does not hurt thee. I am taken very sick of a sudden, said I, so pray let me go to our inn, that I may go to my chamber. Isabel being called in, she and the Quaker attended me there, leaving the young fellow with my spouse. When I was got into my chamber I was seized, with such a grief as I had never known before, and flinging myself down upon the bed, burst into a flood of tears, and soon after fainted away. Soon after I came a little to myself, and the Quaker begged of me to tell her what was the cause of my sudden indisposition. Nothing at all, says I, as I know of, but a sudden chilliness seized my blood, and that joined to a fainting of the spirits made me ready to sink. 
Presently after, my husband came to see how I did, and finding me somewhat better, he told me that he had a mind to hire the young man I had left him with, for he believed he was honest and fit for our service. My dear, says I, I did not mind him. I would desire you to be cautious how we pick up on the road, but as I have the satisfaction of hiring my maids, I shall never trouble myself with the men-servants that is wholly your province. However, added I, for I was very certain he was my son, and was resolved to have him in my service, though it was my interest to keep my husband off in order to bring him on. If you like the fellow, I am not averse to your hiring one servant in England. We are not obliged to trust him with much before we see his conduct, and if he does not prove as you may expect, you may turn him off whenever you please. I believe, said my husband, he has been ingenuous in his relation to me, and as a man who has seen great variety of life, and may have been the shuttlecock of fortune, the butt of envy, and the mark of malice, I will hire him when he comes to me here anon, as I have ordered him. As I knew he was to be hired, I resolved to be out of the way when he came to my husband, so about five o'clock I proposed to the Quaker to take a walk on the pier, and see the shipping while the tea-kettle was boiling. We went and took Isabel with us, and as we were going along I saw my son, Thomas, as I shall for the future call him, going to our inn. So we stayed about an hour, and when we returned my husband told me he had hired the man, and that he was to come to him as servant on the morrow morning. Pray, my dear, said I, did you ask where he ever lived, or what his name is? Yes, replied my husband. He says his name is Thomas, and as to places he has mentioned, several families of note, and among others he lived at my lord's next door to the great French ladies in Pall Mall, whose name he tells me was Roxana. I was now in a sad dilemma fearful I should be known by my own son, and the Quaker took notice of it, and afterwards told me she had believed fortune had conspired that all the people I became acquainted with should have known the lady Roxana. I warrant, said she, this young fellow is somewhat acquainted with the impertinent wench that calls herself thy daughter. I was very uneasy in mind, but had one thing in my favour, which was always to keep myself at a very great distance from my servants and as the Quaker was to part with us the next day or night, he would have nobody to mention the name Roxana too, and so of course it would drop. End of section 33